pray. Lord, this is our favorite day of the week, the Lord's Day. We love to come together. We are your gathered church. And we realize that we are only one. You are building your church and you are using your church to make disciples of Jesus Christ who will follow him to the grave. Lord, we are reminded this morning of our beginnings and who we were before you arrested us and changed our hearts and caused us to love the Savior who arrested us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand and fully embrace so that we can then, in turn, use this doctrine, these truths that we are hearing today, the bad news of the gospel, the bad news that is the beginning of the good news. And, Lord, we look forward to next week when we will plunge ourselves into the good news of the gospel. For now, Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to give us grace to believe and obey your word. Lord, without your spirit, we don't even have the capacity to say Jesus is Lord from the heart. And so would you come and change our hearts, we pray, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen and amen. It was by a happy providence of God that I have a, a dear friend who for many years served as a prosecuting attorney in federal court. And one day over lunch, I asked him if it would ever be appropriate for me to bring a couple of my boys down to the courthouse to kind of watch him do his thing, you know, Confront bad guys in court. It would not only be interesting, I suggested, but it would also fulfill a Boy Scout badge requirement. <laughs> and I figured he couldn't resist that. And to our delight, he invited us to come. They had a significant case going on in downtown Fort Worth. And on the appointed day, we went to the courthouse, and sure enough, there was a significant drugs and firearm case taking place. My sons and I were captivated by what we saw and what we heard. We still talk about it. And after a few hours of watching, they called for a lunch break. And during that hour with my friend and my boys, um, he asked them, do you have any questions, any observations, anything you're curious about in the courtroom today? And one of my boys asked, yeah, I have a question. Uh, and he said, I noticed that just to the left of the judge's bench, there appears to be a metal door, a big one. And, but I never saw anybody walk through it, either direction. And my friend says, oh, my friend, that is a really good observation. You see, at the end of the day, if you happen to be the person who is accused, and you get convicted, the one thing you dread most is the possibility that at the end you will be escorted past the judge's bench and through that steel door. Because if you are unfortunate enough to walk through that door, 
You will not be coming back. Your case is over. Once you pass through that door, it's done. What a terrible prospect. When you walk through that door, you are in jail. No matter how magnificent the courtroom may look, as soon as you go through that door, everything changes. I thought about that this week because the Apostle Paul, through the early chapters of his letter to the Romans, is serving as a prosecuting attorney, not merely against the Jews, but against all mankind. He begins in Romans 1.18, where we read, For the wrath of God is revealed, or it's a present tense verb here, it is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth about God in their unrighteousness. And from that initial statement all the way to our text this morning, the end of the chapter, chapter 3, Paul presents God's case against sinners. He lays out the evidence, accuses them of the crime, announces the final sentence of judgment, and after that it's done. But as you know by now, Paul is not doing that to spite the Jews. He's not doing that to spite the Gentiles. To the contrary, his mission is to awaken them. You remember back in the 70s or 80s when they had that TV show called Scared Straight? Now, maybe this isn't exactly like that, but Paul is wanting us to see the reality of what happens to sinners when they die. He is wanting to awaken the accused to their hopeless case so that they will cast themselves upon the mercy of the court. For the Apostle Paul, this is not an exercise in intellectual gamemanship. It's a real life and death drama that will end either in eternal life or in eternal death in hell. For those who are too proud to throw themselves on the mercy of the court, there, there is coming a day. The New Testament refers to it as the great white throne judgment. And let me read just a couple of verses from that part of Revelation, Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12, the, the Apostle John writes these words. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This, this is evident that Paul, is, his, most, his highest concern was about when he thinks of the lost Jews and Greeks who lived in Rome, he was very concerned. They were religious people. They believed in God, or gods, as it were. And the reason he's so concerned is because whether one is a Jewish follower of the law or whether you are a Gentile worshiping idols, every human being must stand trial for their crimes against the king. 
In fact, the judge has already declared that every one of them is scheduled to be escorted through that door to the left of the bench, never to return, every one of them. And so what we have in our text this morning is an explanation of of something more terrifying than anything that we can imagine. Paul's talking about the future. He's talking about the inevitable guilty verdict for all who die, suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. If you've not repented of your sin and cast all your hope on the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, Paul means to warn you of what God will say to you when you stand in the dock, as it were, before his judgment seat. You know what the dock is? If you go to Jamestown, uh, there's a, uh, or even in Philadelphia, uh, where they have a courtroom from back in the 1700s. There'll be a little place that's between the audience and the lawyers on one side, on the other side is the bench and the judge, and then there is a, a little place where there are bars on at least three sides, and you stand there, it's called the dock. You are the one who's being prosecuted. You're standing in the dock. And it, it surely must be a terrible thing. And Paul is saying, everybody's in the dock. To help us walk through this passage in a systematic and orderly manner, I've divided the passage into four statements that summarize what sinners should look forward to hearing in court on their final day of judgment. But before we dig into these frightening words, let's stand together and read this verse or this text in context. This is Romans 3, and we need to get a context here, and we're going to reflect on it just a little bit more than we did, or or I'll touch on it a little bit, the same text that we looked at last week. Romans 3, 9 through 20. Apostle Paul writing, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Now, let me just stop there for a minute and remind you that the word Jews is not in the original text. Paul may be speaking about Christians. And he's saying, are we Christians fundamentally any better than you? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their tongue is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Which, by the way, we didn't really camp out much on last week. That's the main problem. That's the main problem. There is no fear of God in their eyes. He continues, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, 
No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin, not the cure. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You can be seated. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us that it's appointed for a man to die once and after that the judgment. You have an appointment with God. It's an appointment that you will most, miss, most certainly not miss. You don't know when your appointment will come, but it is coming. And when it comes, there will be no time to prepare. You will not be late to this appointment. And whatever God says to you in those few moments will be the final verdict on your life and the determination of where you will spend eternity. What Paul wants us to understand, however, is that, is that if, if you depart this world separated from Christ, the first statement that you will hear from the judge will go something like this. And by the way, each of these statements are, are really, they're, they're not worded the same way in the text, but just as a rhetorical device, this is, this is how I'm presenting it, and then we'll unpack each section. But this is the first thing that you will hear on that day. Number one, God will say to you, you are hopelessly guilty. How would you like that? I mean, you get into a car accident, you end up in court, and the judge says, hey, like, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. You are guilty. What about the evidence? Well, God knows all the evidence. He knows everything about you. As I said, Paul has been warning us about this from all the way back in chapter 1. It was there that he warned the Gentiles of this eventuality. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Paul turns to the Jews with the same message. You are hopelessly guilty. To a world of people in our, in our day, in our age, who have been taught all of our lives that we are fundamentally good, the word of the Lord comes with strikingly powerful accusations. Of course, the things he says about humanity are hard to hear. They're hard to hear. And we just read them, right? In our text for last week. I mean, we don't like that. No one even seeks for God. No one understands all have become worthless. And by the way, all of those statements, all of them were quotations out of the Old Testament. Most of them from the Psalms, one of them from Isaiah. But the Jews would have been especially offended by this description of their depravity or the revelation of their depravity. After all, they were God's chosen people. They had the divine privileges that no other group in the world possessed. And the most important of the privileges was the fact that Yahweh had entrusted to them exclusively the inscripturated word. He gave them his law. Paul, however, took great pains to show them that their ultimate salvation and entrance into heaven was not based on their Jewishness, as they thought, it was not based on their spiritual privileges. 
It would not be based on their efforts to obey the law of God. And as always, Paul presented these disturbing truths by appealing to Scripture. You may remember from our time last week, when we looked at that description of human depravity Paul mentions in 9 through 18. They all came not from the Torah, which are the first five books, but from other places in the Old Testament. And Paul makes a big deal out of this. This is what Paul's referring to when he says in verse 19, now we know that, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And as a good Bible student, you've got to ask yourself, what is the law? Well, we would normally think the law of God in Exodus, given first in chapter 20, and then again in Deuteronomy, the Torah, the first five books called the law, but that can't be it here because none of the scriptures that Paul used in that section on depravity, none of that came from the Torah. It came from the Psalms, and it came, as I said, from Isaiah. And so what he's saying is, that everyone, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Whatever the Old Testament says is for those who are under the Old Testament. Now the phrase, now we know, indicates that this is something the Jews would have agreed with. I mean, there wasn't much that Paul and they agreed on but they agreed on this, namely, that whatever the Old Testament says, whether positive or negative, it says to those who are under the law. Everyone who has any affiliation with the Old Testament. And the Jews would have understood this implicitly. Paul is speaking about his fellow Jews. They were the blessed recipients of the oracles of God. They had the Old Testament. Nobody got the Old Testament except when it came through them. But they also lived under its authority. It was not just a gift. It was not just a privilege. It was the supreme authority. And they would agree with this principle, but they had a hard time believing that everything Paul said about human depravity actually applied to them. And Paul is saying, you better believe it because I gave it to you out of the Old Testament. Every statement of human depravity that he used was a direct quotation from scriptures, Old Testament scriptures. And yet, every word, every word, though they say they would believe it, they would not apply it to themselves. The very oracles of God, Paul says, prove that Jewish sinners are under the wrath of God. The fact that you're Jewish is beside the point and is not helpful necessarily. We could say it this way, the Jews stood guilty before God because they had the word of God written in a book, namely the Old Testament scriptures. They knew, they knew what God required at the very minimum. And what is the very minimum of what God requires of the Jews? Well, at the very minimum, at the baseline, he requires that we love the Lord our God with all our hearts and all our souls and all our mind and all our, our strength. How many of you do that?
when you got up this morning, were you already loving Jesus? Were you already saying, Lord, can we talk? Just talk about your goodness to me, your grace. You love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you say that, it's probably not true. Paul says you're a liar. But if you, in your mind, pass that test, will you pass the other? And love your neighbor as yourself? Really? You know how much you sacrifice for yourself? A lot. A lot. We sacrifice a lot because we love ourselves. You want me to just prove that to you? Who brushed your teeth this morning? Wasn't me, I assure you. (laughs) Why'd you do that? Why'd you brush your teeth? Because you love yourself. You love yourself. You don't want to have, I mean, like serious halitosis. Nobody wants to fellowship with you. Who dressed you today? Well, I mean, my wife dresses me in the same suit every week, so I'm easy. Why did you dress yourself? Why did you come looking good? Because you love yourself? Do you love other people, the people around you, the same as you love yourself? Do you make those kinds of sacrifices for other people because you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Answer, no. I really don't love God that much, and I don't love people that much. Lawbreaker. And we don't have to go into all of the other dietary laws. We don't have to get into the Ten Commandments. Lawbreaker. You don't love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Gentiles didn't have God's written law in a book, but they're just as culpable, just as guilty. Because as we learned in Romans 2.15, they had the law of God written in their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That is, they were all born with a conscience that encouraged them when they did what is right and accused them when they did what is wrong. You don't have to be from America and under the influence of American Christianity to have a conscience. Everyone born into the world has a conscience. A lot of their conscience is misguided and trained badly, but they have a conscience. And based on their conscience alone, they are condemned because the very thing that they invented, the law, not not the law of God, but law itself, the law that they have put themselves under, they didn't even keep that. And nobody can. I remember back in the days when Promise Keepers was a big thing, and they came up with, the, what, the seven laws of the Promise Keeper. And someone one day said, um, seven, seven laws. We already have ten that we don't keep. <laughs> we're we're going to add seven more. And we think if we're clever enough or we're comprehensive enough, we come up with a new law. Well, that'll make everything better. Look, we're not obeying the law that we know already. And so while it's not written in a book, it's written in their hearts. So when Paul says whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. He's speaking about everyone. 
without exception. What did the law of God say about the Jews? Well, as Paul has taken great pains to explain, the law says that Jews are guilty without excuse. In fact, those are the first words in, in, uh, in chapter, th- chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. He's speaking to the Jews. Here's the beginning of his, his monologue about the, the Jews. But he's already told the Gentiles in chapter 1 that they are without excuse because they knew God and they suppressed the truth of God. The point of all of this is simply that everyone's in the dock. No matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done or haven't done, you all stand in the dock before God. We know this is what Paul is saying because back in verse 9, Paul reminds his readers that, quote, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. And we talked about what it means to be under sin last time you're captivated, you're, you're enslaved, or you're imprisoned, or you're dominated by sin. But here I want to focus on the word charged. Charged. It's a legal term. It's part of the vocabulary of the courtroom. More specifically, it's, it's a word that would be most frequently used as a prosecuting, used by a prosecuting attorney. They're the ones who are, who are laying out the charges. His job is to accuse sinners. Moreover, his charges are true, at least in this case. And Paul is the prosecutor and God is the judge. His charges are true as evidenced by the Old Testament's repeated teaching on the sinfulness of mankind. And so, here we all stand in the dock. The bailiff enters the court and he cries, this court is in session, order, order. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The first thing a sinner will hear when he suddenly finds himself perhaps unexpectedly, in the judgment seat of God, the first thing he will hear is, you, my friend, are hopelessly guilty. And it doesn't matter who you are. The second words that you will hear from the judge go something like this. Not only you are guilty, but you have no defense. You have no defense. Notice what Paul says in the next phrase. Of verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. As Paul prosecuted this case, he tells us that all men are sinners and the Jews came to their own defense. When they heard this prosecution, they immediately stood up and began making their objections. But God, I, I've kept the Sabbath, every Sabbath. But God, 
I'm, I've maintained the dietary laws that you've established. But God, I went to synagogue and I sent my, my boys to synagogue school. God, I, I remembered the poor and I, I helped people as I could. Uh, God, I, I didn't steal or murder or take the name of the Lord my God in vain. In our time and culture, it may sound more like this. But God, I've always been a good person, at least I'm less sinful than the people I hear about it on the news every night. But God, my pastor told me week after week that you are a God of mercy, 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 love, 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 and forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. I didn't know anything about judgment. But God, I attended church most weeks and it was generous to your people. And, and, and you know what? All of these things, well, most of them are, are good. But here's the thing. None of your religious works has the power to save a sinner or bring him into a reconciled relationship with God. None of it can wash away your sins. None of it. As we've learned repeatedly in Romans, there is a righteousness you desperately need, you don't have, and you can't earn. None of us is born righteous, and no one can measure up to the righteousness God possesses and requires. And so now it's time to close the case on all mankind. William Hendrickson draws a vivid picture here when he writes, there is nothing more that man can say in his defense. Everybody's standing in front of God the judge. The records are read. And as it were, one by one, the accused are given opportunity to answer the charges made against them. However, their guilt having been exposed, they have no answer. Their mouths are silenced. And there is silence in heaven. When we read passages in the Old Testament that say the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. This is not a worship service. It's just condemnation. What will God say on judgment day? Well, first of all, he will say you are hopelessly guilty. Secondly, he will say you have no defense. Third, your sentence has already been declared. Welcome to court. You're guilty. You have no defense. And your sentence has already been handed down. God has a purpose in all of this. Paul says it is so that every mouth will be closed and the world would become accountable to God. The reason he's given us the Bible is so that we would shut our mouths relative to defending ourselves regarding our sin. And that the whole world, the whole world will become accountable. This is interesting. The word accountable here is important. This is the only place in the New Testament where it's used. And it is a legal term, accountable. It's a legal term that refers to a criminal 
who has already been found guilty, the judge has already passed sentence, it's the equivalent of being placed on death row without any prospect of appeal. That's what he means when he says that the whole world may become accountable, that all of you will be condemned. We read about this in perhaps an unlikely place. You think about the words of Jesus and you're hoping, hoping they would be encouraging. And John 3 is a great place to find encouragement, right? John 3, 16. God so loved the world. We haven't seen anything about the love of God here yet. We, this is like, what, 17 sermons in. We haven't seen anything about the love of God yet. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Isn't that wonderful? All the way through here, Paul's been saying, you're going to perish, you're going to perish, you're going to perish. John 3.16 comes around and says, God sent his one and only Son so that you would not perish. But notice, notice what Jesus says. This is... Uh, John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, whoever does not submit to the Son, whoever doesn't put himself under the Son shall not see life, but the, what's the next three words? Wrath of God remains on him. You see, friend, one implication of Paul's words here is that if there is ever going to be hope for your salvation, you have to stop defending yourself. You have to stop making excuses. You need to fire your internal defense attorney. He is not helping you. This is your only acceptable recourse. The Apostle John assures us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by the way, do you know what the word confess means in the original language? It means to say the same thing. To say the same thing as God about your sin. When you confess sin, do you say about your sin and your heart what God says about your sin and your heart? If not, then it's not true confession. It's not even the beginnings of true repentance. To say the same thing. You will know that you are truly repentant when you begin evaluating your sin the way God evaluates your sin. You will know you are repentant when you stop defending yourself and begin owning the fact that in your heart, you are just what verses 9 through 18 says you are in the eyes of God. And so for your own good, for your own eternal well-being, for the glory of God in your everlasting joy, Paul is pleading with you, stop talking. Shut your mouth. Stop making excuses for your sin. Stop blaming others. Well, it was my mom, or it was my dad, or it was my brother, or it was that person who treated me badly. Or Stop. 
be silent. Stop saying it's not fair. It is time for you to bow your head and shut your mouth. You have been accused by God himself, and there is no defense. Your sentence has already been passed down, and barring a divine act of mercy on your behalf, your judgment is a sure thing. And you may say, mercy? Is that an option? Yeah, Paul hasn't said much about that yet, but that's where he's going. It is an option. And so, what will God say on Judgment Day? He will say, you are hopelessly guilty. You have no defense. Your sentence has already been declared. And finally, just in case you're holding out hope that your record of obedience to God and his law can still save you, God says, the law cannot save you. The law cannot save you. Now, why can the law not save you? Look at verse 20. For by the works of law. He may not be speaking about the Mosaic law. He may not be just exclusively speaking of, of the Old Testament. He may be speaking of any law. But in any case, by the works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, not salvation. The law cannot save you. The law does a magnificent work that hopefully will result in salvation. But the law doesn't save you. Well, what does the law do? The law just exposes your sin. It exposes your heart as being sinful. You all know what it's like. You identify a sin in your life and you go, okay, that's it, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm proclaiming to my wife or to whoever, that's it, I'm never going to do that again. And a week later, you do it again. And you know what the law is saying in the background? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. And you have. Well, I'm going to do better next time. You're enslaved by sin. How can you do better next time? If you're looking for a way of salvation from the righteous wrath of God, don't look to the law. The purpose of the law was not to save you. The purpose of the law was to condemn you and to show you the legality of your condemnation. On Christmas Day this year, as so many of you know, I came down with a debilitating case of COVID-19, and it was good for me. It's not my point, but one of the first things that the doctors did when I went to the total care place is they took x-rays of my upper body because they wanted to see how my lungs were faring, and they weren't faring well at all. But later that day, they sent me home, and they sent with me the x-ray film. And I brought it home, and I showed it to my kids. And one of them pointed to my shoulder in the image, and they said, Dad, what's that? I mean, that looks like a screw. Is that from the equipment? I said, no, that's it's 
from my shoulder. You see, when I was in my 20s, I had reconstructed surgery on my shoulder. And I told the kids many times about having a screw put in my shoulder, but they never saw it. I mean, you can't see it. It's not there, it's below the surface. It's in the dark. But they never saw it until I brought home the x-ray. The law of God is something like an x-ray machine. It, It can do nothing to cure your problem. It can only help you see what the problem is. And for me, it was I had a screw loose. I should just not even try. Okay. The law can't do anything to cure your problem, but it can re- it can re- reveal what had previously been invisible. And so the Apostle Paul is attempting to awaken us to the problem within. It is a terminal disease, as I said metaphorically last week. It's an It's a terminal disease that is brought to light by the x-ray machine of the, the law of God. The question is, how will you respond to this knowledge? Will you maintain that everything is fine? That your house is not on fire? That that spot on the x-ray or the MRI isn't the cancer that your doctor tells you it is? Or will you believe the diagnosis? The word of God has declared. Or to use commensurate legal terms, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 25 through 26, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court. By the way, he's not giving you legal advice about how to handle your dispute with your neighbor. The one who has a dispute with you is God. And Jesus is saying, you need to come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court with him. Now's the time. Now is the time. When you enter that courtroom, it's done. You're already guilty. There is no defense. Your sentence has been passed down. And so come to terms quickly while you still have time, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, Jesus says, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the bad news of the gospel. This is the bad news of the gospel. And you will never embrace the good news until you have first embraced the bad news. There is good news, however. The good news is that Jesus has fully paid your debt with his precious blood. And all you have to do is own it. And from the heart, believe it, receive it. Bring all of your sin to him. Just load it up. Load it up in a bucket, load it in a wheelbarrow, load it up in a semi-truck if you need to, but load it up and bring it to him and say, Lord, it's all here. Everything I can think of, everything I can remember, it's all here. And it's probably worse than, than what I have. Lord, it's all mine. 
It's ugly. It's horrible. I'm so ashamed of it. Will you take it? Will you throw it as far as the east is from the west? Will you choose not to remember my sins against me because of Jesus? All you have to do is surrender, bring all of your sin to him, believe that what he says about your sin is absolutely true, and then, and then throw yourself on the mercy of the court, and you will be saved. You will soon discover that the righteous judge, the condemning judge, is now your loving father. And he has prepared a place for you to live with him forever. And that life, that eternal life, starts the moment you believe. I had Randy read this morning from the teachings of Jesus, and the very last thing he said was, you need to come like a little child. Not innocent. There are no innocent children. They're little vipers in Christian diapers. <laughs> You know why Jesus uses the, the metaphor of a child? You know what a child is? A child is utterly dependent on his mother. A child is utterly dependent upon his mother. And this was especially true back in Jesus' day. There were no other options. You had mom, and that's it. Come as a child, come dependent. Come offering nothing but your sin. The way Paul describes the good news goes like this, Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. And all God's people said, why? Because the law can only condemn you. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You love it, that's where Paul is taking us. And if you want to hear more about that, you got to come back next week. Here's how the hymn writer put it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to give us the bad news. And I pray, Father, that someone hearing my voice right now would just look up into heaven and say, Lord, this message is for me today. All I have to offer is my guilt, my sin. But I believe that you have paid the price for me, wretched and miserable as I am, to do what you've promised, will you give it not as something earned, but rather as the gift of God, as you have promised. Lord, I believe. 
I believe. Save me. Rescue me. Redeem me. Change me. Do with my life whatever you want to do with my life. I surrender. I'm yours. Take me. And wherever you lead, I will follow. By your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.